When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sandy Garasino, columnist at the National Observer, former Crown Prosecutor, Former Jen Gerson prosecutor, welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. So great to be here, Jesse. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, but but you're in BC. Mm. Sandy, I guess we're going to talk about the weather. Uh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen all of these things in BC via the internet, uh, but you live in BC and you're seeing these things outside of your window. And we're going to talk about how these catastrophic weather events should be covered. Also, she may defend rapists and killers, but who will defend Marie Hanane? It seems that she is once again in distress. Welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Sandy, before we begin, we are wrapping a month of crowdfunding here at Canada Land, and it's kind of now or never for listeners. It's been tremendous. We've had tons of support and new supporters, and we're going to make Canada Land back as a regular part of our ongoing operations here. We're going to make this Indigenous-led stories on Canada Land about Indigenous stories. But it's looking shaky that we're going to hit our other goal, which is French-language episodes of this show, Shortcuts clock is running out and it's still possible that we can do it. Did you catch the episode of Shortcuts that Emily Nicola hosted with Nora Loretto in French? Did I catch it? You can be honest. No. No, no, I did did not. I did not. I'm sorry to say. Can I be honest? I didn't catch it either because I don't speak French. I, uh... (laughs) I agreed to do like an experiment and it's very strange for me as a publisher to publish something that I couldn't understand. And we made sure that it was vetted and checked by people who are fluent. And I just didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if we were going to lose half of our audience who were just going to be outraged that, you know, English speaking audience unable to understand the show, but something kind of magical happened. I don't think I'm like overstating it. It was amazing. The numbers were good, but more than that, the responses were just like, people were so happy Of course, like French-speaking listeners of Canada Land were happy, not just that it was in French, but that it was about French media. But then there were all these other people, Sandy. There were Anglos who kind of speak French and who listened to the episode and were like, oh, I could understand that. I can understand most of it. Do that again. That was kind of interesting and fun and exciting. And then there were French speakers who don't speak French as their first language or speak French from a different context than being French-Canadian. And they felt represented by that show We were overwhelmed and it was like one of these situations where we're like, if people were unanimous and like, do more of that, please do more of that. And we want to do more of that, but it is going to take having senior editorial capabilities here in French. Like we need to have, you know, people who can provide the same fact checking and vetting Mm -hmm. and direction that we do for everything else. So we do need to fund it properly. And I don't know if we're going to get there if people don't act now. So all those people who responded to that episode and who want more of that, this is it. The door is closing. Please, please go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes because it is still possible. Like it's not so far away that we're not going to get there. It's just going to take a really big push. Well, it's so good to hear you talk about this. You know, here in Western Canada, 
um, except for pockets. And there are significant ones. But if you're not in those pockets, we just don't hear French media. We don't hear French language conversation and discussion or or even any understanding of impact. And it's, it's one of the glaring, glaring blind spots that Canada needs to work on. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you're working to develop that. Thank you. I just think it's a cool thing. Like, like when we did an episode in French, I think we may have been the only English current affairs news show to ever just do that. Just, okay, today it's in French. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it made me feel like, okay, like maybe Canada Land could be truly a national, mm-hmm. you know, organization. An actual Canada Land. I think it needs to have some, some French content uh, if we're going to claim that. So please help us get there. Yeah. And if you're going to do it, if it sounds good, please go do it now. Go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin on Canada's west coast where torrential prolonged rain has washed out highways, trapped hundreds of people in their vehicles and forced thousands of people from their homes. After a month's worth of rain fell here in just 48 hours, there is a break in the weather. A critical window for first responders dealing with one emergency after another. And tonight we've learned one person has died. A large chunk of the city is underwater after the nearby Coldwater River spilled its banks and poured onto properties. Sandy, before we talk about the coverage of the weather catastrophe in British Columbia, are you okay? Are you and yours okay? The images are really wild. How is everything for you personally and, and for your family? Well, I'm 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 really happy that my brother and his family were they were on the road the day before or a couple of days before this all happened. I'm glad that they got uh, safely back to Alberta and were and were out of this. We're fine. I mean, I'm in Vancouver. Vancouver, apart from the fact that we are cut off from the rest of Canada completely, um, we're safe for now. But I worry about elders in my family who are in the Fraser Valley. I worry about other family members who've been traumatized by the fires and were evacuated as part of the fires. And if you're in British Columbia, everywhere you look, somebody that you know and love is affected by this. I'm trying to process differently this kind of news. And we just did an episode on the Monday show about what kind of news we should be getting and how to think about climate change and how to report on it. I feel like when stuff like this happens, there's a couple of different kinds of coverage. There's the immediate news you can use if you're in the community and you're like, is my power out? Can I get groceries? Which roads are open? Do I need to evacuate? And people are hitting refresh if they have electricity. And then you're checking the news as you need information to survive in certain circumstances. And then we get the national coverage, which is like this weird mix of, I'll be totally candid about this. When I'm flipping through pictures of of extreme weather in BC, I'm kind of like, I'm gawking. I'm like, whoa, look at them like swimming with their cow. Mm -hmm. Look at that person in a canoe by their roof. Like, and I'm just kind of like, these are extreme Mm -hmm. shocking images. And I'm kind of like flipping through them as just this very safe bystander gawking. And then I also go into like climate school and I read explainers. You know, I read about the heat dome over the summer and now I'm reading about atmospheric rivers. According to the star, think of it as a floating Mississippi river over your head that just dumps half a year's worth of precipitation on you over the course of hours. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, terrifying. I don't feel great about either of those roles as a national newsreader. What are you missing? What are you missing? I feel guilty for the spectacle aspect. I I feel guilty for the gawking part. And then I feel dispassionately removed in like, you know, educating myself about extreme weather patterns at a time when people in British Columbia are struggling to just stay alive, protect their homes. You know, there's feels like a disconnect and I don't know what the point of me absorbing this information is. Well, for me, because we are living it right here. Our city is cut off from the rest of Canada and we don't know for how long. The Trans-Canada Highway, this would be like, for your Toronto listeners, this would be like Toronto is now an island. There is no rail. There are no roads. We have the largest port in Canada. We are have the fourth largest port in North America. And nothing is going to move in the middle of a supply chain crisis. I think part of this story is just the shock. This is going to be an ongoing story because we are going to be confronting in the days and weeks and months ahead the shocks of the system. So I think it's very hard for media to kind of 
fill in those blank spots yet. First of all, there's just so much we don't know. I mean, we don't even have a clear picture here in British Columbia, even with all of the news reporting that there is, we don't have clarity about Well, where are there roads washed out? Where are there boulders, debris on roads? Where are there people missing? And there's a difference between boulders on roads and roads that are gone. Mm -hmm. So just kludging together, you know, getting all the pixels and forming a picture. So from a media point of view, I'm not surprised. This is a spectacular visual event. One of the things it does do for me is underscore the incredible importance of local journalism for listeners who will be taking this, what most of us who are in media or paying attention were watching through the night. We were watching for the possible failure of a pumping system in the Abbotsford community, which is up the Fraser Valley, but it's not part of the urban so much, the urban center of of Vancouver. And we were watching for, were we going to be able to save the pumping system that needs to pump millions of gallons a minute in the middle of an event like this to save the farmland of the Fraser Valley, which supplies 50% of British Columbia's dairy and poultry and all of those farms, the thousands of animals that are now underwater, all of that that is lost, would the whole thing be gone? This was an emergency. So we were watching Local journalists from Abbotsford, Tyler Olson stands out, the Fraser Valley Current, their reporting was absolutely stellar in terms of giving context because there was a cross-border issue to this. Pardon me for going on, but the events that have happened in British Columbia, these are spread out over hundreds of miles. There are washouts and roads gone on Vancouver Island, hundreds of miles away Merritt is evacuated. This is a small city just past the Fraser Valley. Princeton, which is a city in the in the mountains, they are facing disaster and they are cut off with no heat. This spreads out over hundreds of miles. But where everything was concentrated just over the last 24 hours was in the Fraser Valley in a place called the Sumas Prairie, which used to be a lake, but which 100 years ago was drained to provide the Fraser Valley farmland, which is such a rich agricultural provider for Canada. Well, that is dependent on what's going on with rivers in northern Washington state. It was not the Fraser Valley that was flooding that was the problem. The problem was flooding in the Nooksack River in Washington state. In northern Washington state, the water was, without being checked by any border guards, crossing over into our Fraser Valley and causing a catastrophic loss and catastrophic risk just there. Well, the only way that British Columbians and Canadians could get really any understanding of what was going on was because there were local journalists, reporters who were familiar with the geography there and the history there and how all of this came to be. So this is a real shout out. We are losing local journalism. And what we need is local journalists who are familiar with the local scenario, the history and the background, because this is not something that Ian Hanamansing of the journal can just pick up and go with. He needs those feeder lines of local journalism. But I think it's too early to kind of frame this in a bigger picture. And part of it has to do with how much can Canadians really absorb of what's going on? Sandy, you did a terrific job there of both just describing the expanse of this, but really reframing what's important here. The practicalities, this is physical and immediate for those who this matters to most. And I agree with you. What is crucial right now is both for immediate purposes, people need information. And then somebody has to tell the story of this Mm -hmm. and somebody has to be there to tell the story. and, And people are risking life and limb, chasing storms, chasing dangerous situations to document this. And really the national framing or what role I and other gawkers looking at this from abroad, like it's just of minuscule importance when contrasted with what British Columbia needs from the media right now is thorough documentation. 
in the most immediate terms of which, you know, where the mudslides are, where there are boulders, but also if we're going to learn anything from this, and I think that we're going to need this information because this is going to happen again and again, and the conversation is going to quickly move towards risk mitigation management, uh, disaster preparedness, where resources need to go to anticipate the next time this happens. We need a good record. And I think it would be a crime if this were happening in BC and it wasn't a big story elsewhere, if we weren't paying attention nationally, but it's not about us outside of BC right now. Let me put it to you this way. What do you need, if anything? We're still in shock. And mostly we need information. And I don't know that the rest of Canada can provide that. We need information from our government sources about what is the real state of what we're facing. You know, when there's an unexpected death in the family and you can't even really process and people want to be helpful, but you don't, you, you haven't even, you've just woken up and someone incredibly important in your life is gone and you can't even really believe that this has happened. We're in that state, I think, right now. I think the biggest thing that, that British Columbians need is information from our own government and our own experts about what is the state of affairs. What are the p potential possible other routes? What are we going to be missing on supply lines? We are actually a supplier to the rest of Canada right now. What do we expect? What are we going to be cut off from? We don't really know yet. So it's in it's information. And then I would be remiss if I didn't say that local community groups um, need support. Abbotsford needs support. We have First Nations communities, Indigenous communities throughout British Columbia that will also be struggling. I do not know what their status is and what their needs are. You can go to the Salvation Army or go to the food banks in British Columbia and donate to them because we're short food. The grocery shelves are empty in a lot of these communities. And uh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Kids are cold. Kids are wet. Um, yeah. Families are out of their houses. They don't know when they're going to go back. So um, support to those aid agencies, um, Red Cross, uh, food banks, local support organizations, and, and look for them, please. Sandy, to kind of go with your analogy of that moment after an unexpected family death and, you know, there's an outpouring and people come from you know, fringes of the family and long lost friends offering their support. How can I help? How can I help? It can become a labor managing all of those offers of help. And maybe, maybe what I could take from this is like to not ask you to do that labor and to just to, I guess, express my gratitude for the labor, uh, that you're doing today and, and just talking about this. So thank you. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Sandy, it's time for Duly Noted. And uh, as someone who respects the courts as much as you do, it must frustrate you when wealthy and powerful people abuse the court system, when they launch frivolous lawsuits that have no chance of success because it happens to momentarily serve their purposes in like a publicity campaign or something. 
you know what I'm talking about here? I'm talking about libel cases, frivolous libel cases. <laughs> Somebody's accused of something. What, what am I talking about? A rich or powerful person is accused of something and they deny it, even though it may well be true. And then they have to play the role of an innocent person. What does an innocent person do when they're unfairly accused? Uh, they launch a libel suit against their horrible accusers. That gets covered by the news and that gets headlines during a scandal. And it introduces some doubt, you know, like maybe this person is a victim of false accusations. You know, they're going through the lawsuit. And then some months later, once the heat has died down and the headlines have gone away, they drop the lawsuit or the lawsuit gets thrown out of court because it's so weak. And that always gets a lot less attention. So I can think of nothing better to duly note today than two lawsuits that were garbage to begin with and which are now kaput. And the first is a lawsuit that Maxime Bernier filed against Warren Kinsella. Did you catch this one? I saw bits of it. We were a bit distracted at this end of the country. Say more about this. So, you know, Maxime Bernier, he got big headlines nationally that like, how dare uh, he be accused of being a racist? He is suing Warren Kinsella, political operative who, you know, he was paid by, I think, the Conservative Party to launch this campaign. So it's not exactly like, you know... <laughs> Not exactly like two super sympathetic parties here, but the point of law was like, can you call me a racist or not? I'm Maxine Bernie and I won't stand for it. Well, the judge just threw it out as a slap suit, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. And the main reasons for his conclusion is that he said, you know what? There is a valid defense here for Kinsella. And how is Maxime Bernier going to prove that there's been disproportionate harm weighed against the freedom of expression to call him a racist? And, and it was interesting because the judge actually did take into consideration the larger conversation of like, well, is Bernier a racist or could he be called a racist? What he found was that there is widespread characterization of Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada as racist and xenophobic, or at least as pandering to those elements of the political spectrum. It's fair game for a public figure like Maxime Bernier to be called that by Kinsella. And uh, Mr. Kinsella may have approached his task with a particular caustic enthusiasm, but at worst, Mr. Kinsella's postings can be seen as a drop of vitriol in a sea of criticism, <laughs> basically <laughs> lots of people are considering you a racist, dude. And so you're going to have trouble saying that Kinsella is the one who did you the damage. And then there's another case where uh, a lot of people will remember filmmaker Michelle Latimer. There was a CBC expose that she was misrepresenting indigenous identity. And though she apologized for misrepresenting indigenous identity, she also said that she's been the victim of a horrible smear campaign and that uh, the CBC and specific journalists, specific journalists, including Jorge Barrera and uh, apologies if I mispronounce, Ken Hesio Deer and Angela Sterrett, you know, like this is like an occupational hazard for journalists. You might get personally sued. That's what Michelle Latimer announced that she was doing. She was going to sue these journalists. Well, she has dropped that lawsuit. This was clearly part of a crisis communication strategy at the time because that part of it tends to get less coverage than the initial lawsuit. I am duly noting those two frivolous lawsuits. And good for you, Jesse. I am myself being sued in a defamation case that was launched before the anti-slap legislation. And I'm really, really pleased to see that the anti-slap legislation is coming in. There should be punitive damages for launching these frivolous lawsuits. And it does affect you. In my case, the suit was launched and then nothing was done because the whole point was to make me and make the National Observer uh, stop writing about a certain individual who was basically the impetus of all of the Allen inquiry and all of the foreign funding issues. So it does interfere with legitimate discussion and coverage of major public interest. Duly noted. Sandy, what do you have for us today? Well, not too darn much, Jesse. Like I say, we've been up all night and watching the floods rising. But I notice that Aaron O'Toole, who has a few of his issues, is tweeting this morning about inflation rates rising. And this is while 
We're a little bit concerned about other things rising, Mr. O'Toole, in British Columbia. And Jason Kenney, Premier of Alberta, who is tweeting about his goddamn trucks and how nice trucks are. And there's Joe Oliver, former minister in the Harper cabinet in the Financial Post, talking about how the green pain and talking about COP26 and Canadians are tired of the green pain. Excuse me, gentlemen. We have a climate crisis and British Columbia has taken it in the neck, but not only BC. Can we please focus on the priorities of this country? All we've heard for years and years are the endless advantages of oil and gas that's been so great and provided so much tax dollars. The tax dollars come from the incredibly high incomes that Albertans have had, while they have not been paying the cost of Now we're living with the cost of oil and gas. And Canadians are the insurers of last resort here. It's going to be the public that is going to end up paying for all of this. And it's going to be the public whose lives are affected by our slavish devotion to the resource industry. We're about to face a world of hurt. We're facing it now. And where are these guys? Can they please quit whining about things that don't matter? And I don't care about your truck, Jason Kenney. Duly noted. Sandy, I just want to uh, duly note some CBC content that I'm happy to promote. If the listeners are checking out Shortcuts on the day that we publish it on Thursday, well, tonight on the Fifth Estate, you can watch a report on what the Fifth Estate calls We Charities Donor Deception in Kenya. Here's how they uh, here's how they promote it. We charity told the parliamentary committee that it has built 360 primary schoolhouses in Kenya with donors' money. So we went there to see firsthand if the number of schools funded matched the number of schools actually built. Kudos to the CBC, the first place the Canadians ever heard of discrepancies between what was being fundraised in Canada, like getting children, literally asking children to like go through their parents' couches for change so that they could build a schoolhouse in Kenya. (sighs) Questions about, well, is there really a schoolhouse? How come I can't see a picture of it? That was Jaron Kerr's reporting for Canada Land. And we did get to a stage where we had a partnership with John Allen Namu, a wonderful reporter in Nairobi, to check out uh, certain claims of We Charity. But one thing Canada Land could never do is actually go and send journalists to go to these supposed projects and see if the claims match the reality. And CBC has continued. They've stayed on this. So credit where it's due, the fifth estate. Now they've actually done the thing that I wish we had the resources to do. They sent a team to Kenya, and I will be watching tonight the CBC to see what they found uh, in this report on We Charity's donor deception in Kenya. Check it out. And kudos to you and to the Canada Land team for the research that you have done. I have some expertise and some history with charitable governance, and there were red flags all over the history of governance, independent of your reporting. Your reporting alerted me to it, and you could see anybody with experience in governance would see all the red flags and would be immediately concerned. Duly noted, Jesse. A note to listeners. This segment mentions sexual assault. Sandy Garasino, I-, I was interested to see when I went to the Globe and Mail's website, big national news story. Who's back in the news again? It's Marie Hanane, the most famous criminal defense lawyer in Canada, I would venture. She got John Gomeshi acquitted of his charges of sexual assault, all but one, which uh, there was a plea deal where, of course, he apologized, basically agreed to a peace bond, which is like a restraining order. But that's how she became famous, I think. And she was back in the news. What was the story? Headline read, Toronto School Board rejects Marie Hanane book club event. I knew she had a a, a new book out, a memoir, because there was a full episode of The Decibel where Robin Doolittle interviewed her, and there was tons of coverage of Marie Hanane's memoir. Anyone who litigates high-profile cases would attract attention and criticism, but for Marie Hennen, it has been particularly sharp. That's what's really polarizing. It's not me. I'm not an inherently controversial person. My job is what's 
inciting controversy. Marie Hennon is one of Canada's top criminal defense lawyers, representing clients you've heard of accused of terrible crimes. And if you've ever wondered how can she do that, well, she explains it and a great deal more in her riveting new memoir. I like uh, being an outsider. I like fighting for the underdog. I, I like challenging the state uh, and the status quo. I think what, what garnered a lot of particular attention was your cross-examination of the complainants. Casual observers maybe said it was unnecessarily harsh. It started this whole conversation about how women are treated in the justice system. And at the same time, it launched a parallel discussion, I think, in the legal community that the public does not understand what a criminal defense lawyer's job is. You know, in terms of the public's reaction, I get it. I think they don't uh, get a lot of information about what our role is in the architecture of the legal system. Now she's got like an honest-to-goodness controversy putting her in the headlines that uh, I guess the Toronto School Board is censoring this book club event, and that story just kept going. Uh, the National Post published uh, an editorial, shameful that the Toronto School Board opposed this Marie Hanane event. Toronto Sun, censorship at Canada's largest school board. Did you catch this story? I did catch the story. I did. What do you <sighs> think of it, Jesse? <laughs> I think that it is, first of all, not as advertised because I had to go through to like paragraph three or four, like who's censoring her and what happened. And what we get to is that there is something called a room of your own book club which is organized by Tanya Lee, which invites teenage girls to read a book and then discuss it virtually with the author of that book. Sounds like a wonderful program. So was this book club, was, was Marie Hanane's book thrown out of this book club? No, that's not what happened. What happened was apparently the superintendent or a superintendent of the Toronto District School Board told Tanya Lee, we're not going to promote this event. And then it gets hazy as to why because the superintendent says it was a misunderstanding, but Tanya Lee says that she was told the reason why was because the superintendent felt, or somebody felt, it's actually pretty hazy and unverified, but uh, somebody apparently said that they don't want to have to explain to young girls who Marie Hanane is, <laughs> which was taken by the media as some kind of a personal attack on Marie Hanane, that she is somebody of disrepute. But if you actually think about that, if a teenage girl was saying, well, well, who is this person who's talking today who wrote this book, Marie Hanane? Well, who's Marie Hanane? She's a famous lawyer. Well, what's she famous for? She's famous for defending Gian Gameshi. Well, what did Gian Gameshi do? Uh, Gian Gameshi was accused of brutally choking and beating the women he had sex with. And he says that they agreed to that. And they said that they didn't agree to that. And Marie Hanane got him acquitted of, of many of those charges. I think that that might be arguably something that you don't want to explain to uh, to young girls, but... I think that uh, that absolutely is something that you want to explain to young girls. I think if they're teenagers, the existence of sexual assault and issues of consent should absolutely be discussed with them. There's a robust conversation to be had about what we talk about with young girls and when. And I think that there's probably a spectrum of how graphic you want to get, depending on how old they are. But I don't know for a fact, and I do care about facts when we're talking about a national news story, uh, that that is actually what happened here. What I do see here is that that's not even the issue that's being dealt with. What is being dealt with here, as if it were fact, is this assertion that she is being censored. And when you actually boil it down to the factual record, what you get is a TDSB superintendent saying, I choose not to promote that event. And I can't think of any other instance where the promotion of an event by a TDSB superintendent or lack thereof is a national news story. Well, she was being singled out. Apparently she was being singled out because presumably the promotion would be happening with other book club writers and somebody decided that this was not appropriate or suitable or whatever. And it doesn't take much imagination to know why someone would exercise that judgment about Marie Hanane. And I think that she would be a marvelous guest speaking as a former prosecutor as someone who's very familiar with the criminal justice system and someone who watched that trial and the dropping of the charge. It wasn't a plea bargain, but it was a, a deal that was struck. I watched that whole thing very, very closely. And I thought that that was an extraordinarily 
revealing trial and episode for everybody and very worthwhile. And I think that Marie Hanen is an exceptionally good litigator, criminal defense lawyer, and uh, every student body would benefit from hearing what she has to say about issues like the criminal justice system, the legal system, sexual assault, and what we all can and should expect from our justice system. I totally agree. Uh, (laughs) Why not? It's a totally fascinating person, a fascinating trial. There's lots to be learned from it. And teenage girls would benefit from it. Oh, sure. Sure. I think there's lots of questions to ask her. And uh, I think that, you know, to censor her would be an issue. But Sandy, where are these censors? Well, she's being singled out. It's not really a question of censorship. She was being singled out. And that does disturb me if that's happening at the school board level. Let me take you through this from my perspective here, because this is an old story. This is a story that we have been hearing for years about Marie Hanane, that she is a victim of censorship, uh, a victim of unfair criticism from these people who blame her for the things that her clients were accused of doing. You know, there are these ignorant people out there, and sometimes they're radical feminists who are trying to who are trying to cancel Marie Hanane. Uh, sometimes it's simple-minded bureaucrats who are like cowards, who are kowtowing to the woke mob, you know, equity departments and other bullshit like that. And they just do not understand the basic principles of our justice system. And so they misplace their anger. They criticize Marie Hanane. They single her out that she's like an enemy of feminism or she's betrayed women. And I've been hearing that narrative And it gets national attention every time it's trotted out. And I can't actually find anyone who makes that argument. They're on Twitter anytime I tweet about this. Find me an opinion piece in a newspaper. Find me an actual activist group, a lobby group that's willing to get behind. Like, you can find people on Twitter who said those things. It was the most embarrassing thing when Peter Mansbridge, in order to create this narrative that Maria Hanane is in threat of being canceled, he was reading her Facebook comments. And that was a national news special. These aren't anonymous trolls. There are lots of people... Lots of influential people who've expressed strongly negative opinions about how Marie Hanane conducted her trial. I would challenge that anyone influential or anyone with a real following or who is a serious person in the national discourse has attacked her on that basis. I have looked for it and I cannot find it. What I do see is that whenever she has a book to promote or something similar, that narrative based on the most slender of cherry picked, uh, she's up against some superintendent. Who is this person? There's no quote. It's not verified. And there's like 15 articles written about it. When her book first came out, I was approached by a couple of major national media outlets to comment on it and to be part of panels talking about it. And they raised these issues with me. As it turned out, those interviews didn't happen, but they raised those issues with me. Sure. The idea that she faces that kind of criticism is part of any interview or any panel about it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That wasn't the issue that, oh, she faces this criticism. The issue that as it was framed to me as a potential interview subject was exactly about this. It wasn't that she faced the criticism. It was that, well, is the sexual assault, what should we be doing? What do you think of how she conducted that trial? It was being placed squarely out there uh, as a subject by national media outlets. They love this narrative. She has found a really great partner in editors and producers who love this idea. And I'm sure they would be very, very eager for you to come in there and bash Marie Hanane. Do you have an interest in this, Jesse? Let's explore your interest in this. I can see that she's a fascinating persona and uh, she's trying to get like TV shows and films made about her life. I might guiltily watch that TV show with great interest. I think she's really interesting, but she really does seem to need a foil here. And I don't know that anyone's actually come at her the way that she says. And so let me take a stab at it here because, you know, the narrative that she has been shopping and with the help of, you know, the front page of the Globe Mail's website and, and many, many others over the years is that people do not understand the basic ideas or the high principles of the justice system that no matter how horrible a crime is that somebody's accused of, and no matter who you are, you are innocent until proven guilty and you are entitled to a defense. And the ignorant public does not understand that. But we need a lawyer like her to say that I embody those principles. And that's what I'm here to do is to educate the ignorant public that everyone deserves a defense no matter who they are. Sandy, there are criminal defense lawyers who personify those principles, who represent marginalized people, poor people, 
BIPOC who we know are disproportionately targeted by law enforcement and by the Crown and who face terrible outcomes. Marie Hanane, let's be clear about who we're talking about here. Marie Hanane is a different kind of lawyer. She's a different kind of criminal defense lawyer. So if you are accused of murdering or raping somebody and you have a lot of money, she's the lawyer that you want to call. And her record, we always talk about Gomeshi. Let's talk about who this lawyer is. She represented the former premier of Nova Scotia, Gerald Regan, who was accused of raping dozens of women over a course of decades. And she helped him get acquitted of everything. But if you want to know the truth about Regan, our show Commons did an episode about him. He was a sexual predator. Marie Hanane represented a doctor named Marvin Cezant, who lost his license because the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario concluded that he tied up three of his patients who were young boys and he sexually assaulted them. When the former Attorney General of Ontario killed a bicyclist with his luxury car, he called Marie Hanane. And she did not get him acquitted at trial. No, she convinced the Crown that the guy who Michael Bryant killed an indigenous man named Darcy Allen Shepard who grew up in foster care and who was a drug addict was not worth the effort of a trial. So she's very good at her job. And if we're going to talk about Marie Hanane and feminism, which we should, I think that one achievement of feminism as a civil rights movement that everybody acknowledges is rape shield laws that you can no longer say to a court or to a judge, here's her history of promiscuous behavior. Obviously she had it coming. So Marie Hanane's involvement with that is that she figured out a way around that. And she taught other lawyers how to get around that, how to put a motion before a judge where you can tell the judge that somebody was promiscuous or that they had an STD or that they were pregnant. And even if the judge dismisses that motion, he'll at least know that about this woman. And it will hopefully influence the way he thinks about her as a possible victim of rape. So that's where she stands with that one feminist issue. Let me tell you something. Criminal lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, defend people who are accused of crime. I actually really strongly object to this. But I can tell you, as someone who was very much part of the media at the time that the Gomeshi trial took place, was there was an incredible amount of misinformation that was being spread out there. And for some reason, you, and you did have a personal interest in this, which you are not talking about as part of all of no, this. No, I have a professional, I have a professional interest in this. I do not have a well, personal interest, interest in this. Well, this interest actually strikes me in this conversation as being quite personal, because the kind of comments that you're making, what you're couching in, oh, it's Marie Hanane as a professional, but it actually, this actually sounds like a very personal type of discussion. I will bet you that most of her clients are not rich men accused of sexual assault. I will admit that she probably has primarily well-heeled clientele, but she probably also does pro bono work. Frankly, the biggest issue in the Gomeshi case and how that all rolled out, that's a real issue. That is a live issue. She hasn't invented that. She hasn't sold herself, as far as I can see, as a victim. And something did happen with the Toronto School Board. There was an attempt to be selective about how they were going to deal with an issue, which I actually think is a very important issue, whether they're girls or whether they're boys, because boys are also victimized by sexual predators. And just navigating those issues and understanding them is important. And Maureen Hennain is someone who is an important commentator in that area. Agree with her or disagree with her. She matters in that discussion. But the conversation has become quite personal. And I, for one, strongly object to conflating criminal defense lawyers with their clients, because that is not the role of the criminal defense lawyer. And it's very important that the public understand the role of the criminal defense lawyer. These people do an incredibly important service in the criminal justice system. And it's very, very easy to slip from, well, Marie Hanane we don't like her wealthy clients to someone who's now accused of assisting, for instance, Omar Khadr or, it's, or any of the others. You know, this is a dangerous, slippery slope, and it's something that we should be very, very mindful of. Sandy, I appreciate that it feels personal, but I don't know this individual. So barring any substantiation that, I, that it's a personal gripe, I don't have much weight that I can put into that. I am talking about a narrative about this person that I think has been generated by her 
who is a very public person who wants to sell books, who wants to be the most famous criminal defense lawyer in the country, who wants film and TV shows about herself. And so she's created an invisible foe of those who are trying to censor her. I can't think of a less censored lawyer in Canada who has a bigger platform, who has the media's slavish devotion more than Marie Hanane. We will listen to anything she has to say. She has a platform bigger than any other attorney. And I don't even know what it is that she has to say. First of all, Let's go back and let's be very clear about, shall we say, your professional interest in this, that you were part of central reporting that exposed the Gian Gameshi story. And let's also say, for the record, that there was a real story there. Certainly with the apology to Catherine Burrell, it was absolutely crystal clear and the public certainly accepts that the essence and the substance of the Gameshi story, as it was related through your reporting and other reporters that this was important. This was central, important story, breaking the story of the Gomeshi issue, shall we say, that led to the destruction of his career. His career is over. Never mind all of that. But your reporting broke this story. And it was critically important reporting. However, The criminal case that came from that, which everyone was expecting, a major criminal triumph. Everyone was expecting that Gian Gameshi was going to be convicted of sexual assault and this terrible thing was going to meet its zenith in in the vindication in the criminal courts of the claims against him. And it all collapsed under the, let's be clear, stellar cross-examination and criminal lawyer work by Marie Hanane. So it's not like you have no interest. Yes, it's a professional interest, but I sense in the tone of your approach to this and the degree to which this is such a huge story for you, that it's more than a professional interest, that it's a personal interest. And I just frankly am concerned about the tone of all of this. Marie Hanane is not admirable because she's a great feminist. She is, in my opinion, admirable because she's a great criminal lawyer, period. And her sex is not material, except that there is a suggestion or a strong feeling that as a woman, she should have conducted that trial in a manner different from what every criminal lawyer that I've ever spoken to or criminal judge considered to be great work. Sandy, I will be absolutely forthcoming about my interest in this story. And the first thing I will start with is by challenging your notion that everybody was expecting a conviction. Nobody I was speaking to was expecting a conviction. Nothing in the history of the prosecution of sexual assault would prepare us to see a conviction. I'm going to stop you right there because I actually do know something about the conviction rate for sexual assault cases because I have prosecuted multiple sexual assault cases. Had the complainants not been shown to be giving false evidence under oath, in my opinion, there would have been a clear path to a conviction. And I say this as a former prosecutor who has conducted multiple sexual assault trials. There were many people and there were, there were many victims organizations and many people who talk about how hard it is. But once a sexual assault matter proceeds to trial, if you check the Statistics Canada stats, the hard thing is not getting a conviction at trial. I mean, it's always hard to get a criminal conviction at trial, but the hardest thing is to get your complaint past all the gatekeeping of the criminal justice system and getting a prosecutor and police to accept that you've got sufficient evidence to prove the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt at all levels. That's the hard thing. Once a matter actually proceeds to trial, the conviction rate is not markedly different than other prosecutions because the Crown does not proceed on cases where it doesn't think it has a strong case. That was a case, Sandy, where they were going to go to trial because of the intense public scrutiny regardless. A. B. As a journalist, I have to compartmentalize things. That was my story. And I, of course, care about the outcomes. You cannot get involved to the point where you're rooting 
in a way that's going to affect your coverage for an outcome. You have to let the chips fall where they make because you don't want to get involved in the process. And that is why when after they independently spoke to journalists about what Gameshi did to them, which nobody doubts, independently, having never met each other, gave their accounts, when I knew that Lucy Decatur wanted to reach out and talk to the other victims, a voice in my head said, oh, this is a bad idea. She's going to be accused of collusion, but I can't get involved in being her advocate to make her a good witness for the trial because that would be better for my story or because I, I care about her and her bravery. And that bothers me that it was clear that she was making a mistake and that nobody, nobody, she was not represented by a lawyer in that courtroom. And Bill Blair, the chief of police said, women, if you've been affected by Gameshi, come, we're your friends, come tell us everything. And they didn't know when they came in that everything they said was going to be handed over to Marie Hanane. So if I sound like I care about this as, an, as a human, it's because I do. But if your suggestion is, is that I'm out to get Marie Hanane because I'm mad at her for doing what was obviously what any criminal defense attorney would do. I'm just saying that you should be clear and forthright about your own personal involvement in the case because your comments struck me as personal. My role in this is copiously documented and I have nothing to hide about my role in that story. And I am also a media critic who's assessing a bunch of stories about somebody who has become a very famous media figure from that trial. And there is, I think, a disclosure requirement in doing both of those things, right? So that, I think, is pretty clear to our listeners. Now, what I think needs to be said here is that this is a lawyer like any other has choices as to what kind of a lawyer to be. And... This is a lawyer who does not embody the idea that anybody can get the white glove service of a Marie Hanane. This is a lawyer who personifies more than any other lawyer the sad fact of our criminal justice system, which is that if you are accused of horrible crimes and you are incredibly rich, your chances of walking away are much higher. And that's nothing to be proud of. That's not a good part of our system. But that's who this person is to me. I am just Googling Marie Hanane pro bono. And I just want to mention that the very first hit that comes up was that Marie Hanane retired as chair of the pro bono inmate appeal program after 20 years of service. The pro bono inmate appeal program provides free unpaid experience duty counsel services to unrepresented and incarcerated appellants who've been denied legal aid funding on their criminal appeals. You can go on and on, but she is honored for her pro bono work with unrepresented inmates and incarcerated people. I do not know enough about this lawyer's role, about her work, and I would suggest that neither do you. That is Shortcuts. <laughs> Sandy Garasino, thank you for talking with me today. It was actually enormous fun. Took my mind off the floods for a few minutes. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com and I read everything that you send. Sandy Garasino, where can people find you? People can find me in the National Observer and um, on Twitter at Garasino. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do here and you want to receive ad-free episodes and you want to receive shortcuts in French, uh, go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm.